Section 40 of Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The World's Story, Volume 11, Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 40. Shopping at a Hudson's Bay Company's Fort by H. M. Robinson Toward the latter end of March, or at the beginning of April, the Indian trappers leave their hunting grounds and make a journey to the fort with the produce of their winter's toil. Here they come, marching through the forest, a motley throng, not men only, but women and children and dogs, of all ages and conditions, each dragging sleds or hand toboggans, bearing the precious freight of fur to the trading post. The braves march in front, too proud and too lazy to carry anything but their guns, and not always doing even that. After them come the squalls, bending under loads, driving dogs or hauling hand sleds laden with meat, furs, tanned deerskins, and infants. The puppy dog and the inevitable baby never fail an Indian lodge or cortege. The cheering spectacle of the two, packed together on the back of a woman, is not of infrequent occurrence. For in the fur land, wretched woman often bears man's burden of toil as well as her own. The unwilling dog also becomes a victim and degenerates into a beast of burden, either drawing a sledge or a loaded travail. Fifty or one hundred miles away from the nearest fort, the minks and martins of the Indian trappers have been captured. Half a dozen families have perhaps wintered together, and they all set out for the fort in company. The dogs and women are heavily laden, and the march through the melting snow is slow and toilsome. All the household goods have to be taken along. The black and battered kettles, the leather lodge, the axe, the papoose strapped in its moss bag, the two puppy dogs not yet able to care for themselves, the snowshoes for hunting, the rush mats, the dried meat. Altogether it makes a big load and squaw and dog toil along with difficulty under it. Day after day the mongrel party journeys on until the post is reached. Then comes the trade. The trapping or wood Indian not being considered a dangerous customer, the gates of the post are freely thrown open to him. Accompanied by his female following, bearing the burden of fur, he marches boldly into the trading room. Here the trader receives him, and proceeds at once to separate his fur into lots, placing the standard valuation upon each pile. The trader, having separated the furs and valued each at the standard valuation, now adds the amount together and informs the Indian who has been a deeply interested spectator of all this strange procedure, that he has got 60 or 70 skins. At the same time, he hands his customer 60 or 70 little bits of wood to represent the number of skins, so that the latter may know, by returning these in payment of the goods for which he really barters his furs, how fast his funds decrease. The first act of the Indian is to cancel the debt of last year. This is for advances made him at the beginning of the season for the company generally issue to the Indians such goods as they need, up to a certain amount, when summer supplies arrive at the forts, such advances to be returned in furs at the end of the season. After that, he looks round upon the bales of cloth, guns, blankets, knives, beads, ribbons, etc., which constitute the staples of the trade, and after a long while concludes to have a small white capote. The trader tells him the price, but he has a great deal of difficulty in understanding that eight or ten skins only equal one capote. He believes in the single standard of value, one skin for one capote. If an Indian were to bring in a hundred skins of different sorts, or all alike, he would trade off every one separately and insist on payment for each as he sold it. 
It is a curious and interesting sight to watch him selecting from the stores articles that he may require as he disposes of skin after skin. If he has only a small number, he walks into the shop with his blanket about him and not a skin visible. After some preliminary skirmishing, he produces one from under his blanket, trades it, taking in exchange what he absolutely needs. Then he stops. Just as one thinks the trading is over, he produces another peltry from beneath his blanket and buys something else. Thus he goes on until, having bought all the necessaries he requires, he branches off into the purchase of luxuries, candy, fancy neckties, etc. Under so slow a process, an Indian trader needs to possess more than average patience. When the little white capote has been handed to the Indian, the trader tells him the price is ten skins. The purchaser hands back ten little pieces of wood, then looks about for something else, his squaw standing at his elbow and suggesting such things as they need. Everything is carefully examined, and with each purchase, the contest over the apparent inequality between the amount received for that given is renewed. With him, one skin should pay for one article of merchandise, no matter what the value of the latter. And he insists also upon selecting the skin. Like his savage brethren of the prairies, too, he has never solved the conundrum of the steelyard and the weighing balance. He does not understand what medicine that is. That his tea and sugar should be balanced against a bit of iron conveys no idea of the relative value of peltries and merchandise to him. He insists upon making the balance swing even between the trader's goods and his own furs until a new light is thrown upon the question of steelyards and scales by the acceptance of his proposition. Then, when he finds his fine furs balanced against heavy blankets and balls, he concludes to abide by the old method of letting the white trader decide the weight in his own way for it is clear that the steel yard is a very great medicine, which no brave can understand, and which can only be manipulated by a white medicine man. When the Indian trapper has paid his debt and purchased all needful supplies, if he has any skins remaining, he turns his attention to the luxuries of life. The luxuries of life, with the painted child of the forest and stream, consist of fancy neckties, colored beads, cotton handkerchiefs, red and yellow ochre, and cheap and tawdry jewelry. For articles such as these, he hands over his remaining chips amid childlike manifestations of delight on the part of his expectant squaw. Then he turns his attention to the last, and to him, the most important feature of the trade, that of getting into debt again, for a great majority of the Indians and half-breed trappers and hunters really live in a state of serfdom or peonage to the company. Indeed, it may be said that every man, woman, and child living in the furland contributes to the revenues of that corporation and also that the company feeds, clothes, and wholly maintains nine-tenths of the entire population, nearly all classes being more or less engaged in the fur trade and bartering their produce at the many posts scattered over the country. Like the Mexican or Brazilian peon, the Indian trapper is so constantly, and for him so largely in debt to the fur trade, as to be practically its servant. Twice during the year, perhaps, he is free from debt and his own master. But such freedom is only of momentary duration, continuing but for such time as he can get into debt again. In fact, the trapper seems ill at ease when free from pecuniary obligation, and plunges into it with a facility, and to an extent, only limited by his ability to contract it. By this system of advances, the company rules its vast territories, and is as much of a monarch in the frozen latitudes as Crusoe was monarch of his island. The continuance of this system has been caused by the necessities of the hunters and trappers, and by the fact that the company, like the wise corporation that it is, does not kill the goose that lays the golden eggs, but carefully cares for the game and the hunters on its vast preserves.
Contrary to the general rule in civilized life, a debt is seldom lost, except in the event of the death of the trapper. He may change his place of abode hundreds of miles, but he still has only a company's post at which to trade, and it is impossible for him so to conceal his identity as not to be found out sooner or later. But the trapper seldom attempts to evade the payment of his debts. He is not yet civilized to that degree which practices rehypothecation. The company has always been a good friend to him and his, supplied his necessities, ministered to his wants, and he pays when he can. He knows that when he liquidates his old debt, he can contract a new one just as big. He knows, too, that when the company promise him anything, he will get it, and that he will always pay just so much for his goods and no more. No attempt was ever made to cheat him, and there never will be. When he is ill, he goes to the nearest fort and is cared for and attended until he recovers. When he does his duty well, he gets a present, and he never performs any labor for his employers without receiving a fair compensation. Such humane treatment binds the Indian and half-breed to the company in a bond that is not easily broken. So, when he has spent all his little pieces of wood and asks for further advances, he is allowed to draw any reasonable amount. Carefully looking over the purchases already made, counting up his supply of ammunition, clothing, gigals, etc., he concludes to take more tea and tobacco, for the trapper is very Asiatic in his love of soothing stimulants. The purchase of such soothing solace terminates the trade of the Indian trapper. After going in debt to the extent of his ability, he wends his way to the forest again. The furs he has traded are thrown carelessly behind the counter, to be afterward carried to the fur room. In the early spring, when the snow has gone from the plains and the ice has left the rivers, the workmen at the trading post begin to pack all the fur skins in bales of from 80 to 100 pounds each, that being the usual weight of each package, goods or furs, in the company's trade. The outer covering is buffalo skin or rawhide. Loops are made to each package in order to sling it on the pack saddles, if the pack is sent from an inland post. The pack saddles are repaired and thongs cut to fasten the bales onto the horses. The company's horses, of which each fort has its complement, that have wintered in some sheltered valley under the care of Indians, are now brought to the post. The packs are tied on, and the train starts for the depot or chief fort of the district, situated always on the banks of some navigable stream. This is called fitting out a brigade and forms the grand event of fort life, being looked forward to by the men as a boy anticipates his holidays. Arrived at the depot, the bales are handed over, and goods for the ensuing year received in return. It generally occurs that several brigades meet at the depot simultaneously. In this event, the spectacle presented is quaint and singular. The wild looks, long, unkempt hair, sunburnt faces, and leather costumes of the traders being only exceeded by the still wilder appearance and absence of clothing among their Indian attendants. So long as the brigades remain, the scene is one of continuous festivity, eating, drinking, and quarreling. When the brigade departs, the furs are all sorted and repacked and pressed into bales by an enormous lever, rum and tobacco being placed between the layers of skins to keep out the insects and moths. They are then shipped by slow stages to the nearest seaport and eventually sold at public auction in London. End of section 40. This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Colleen McMahon.